Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. Now, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play in order not to miss any of the smart, conservative, non-tribal commentary this year. It is April 11th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the managing editor of the Weekly Standard, Christine Rosen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Now, you know, it, it, it is, it's hard to break through this, uh, this news cycle with Syria payoffs to porn stars, raids on the offices of the personal lawyer to the president. But Mark Zuckerberg has managed to do it. And, and he's, he's testifying before Congress uh, yesterday and today. And I, th- I think it's because millions of Americans now feel like they're one of the Winklevoss twins. <laughs> now, you got that reference, right? Yes. <laughs> the people that, you know, that you go back and Mark Zuckerberg's entire career, the entire story is defrauding these other guys at Harvard and I think a lot of people are going, wait, 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 did, did we get scammed by Facebook? So let me ask you, this. what do you want to see um, from Zuckerberg? What do you want to have happen? Well, I think that what everyone has uh, expected is happening. He's groveling. Um, this is news mainly because he's not done it personally before. He's not – he's been – Facebook employees have been called to testify before Congress before, but this is the first time Zuckerberg himself has gone before Congress. You know, the, on uh, on Monday, he made the rounds on Capitol Hill. He wasn't in a hoodie. He's wearing a suit as if to signal, I'm serious this time. But That's for, a big deal. <laughs> exactly. I mean, <laughs> But for anyone who's been following his career and, and Facebook... Uh, it's difficult not to be cynical. They have a, they have many many times overreached and uh, apologized for it, and then very little substantive change occurs. So you know they've made recently all these announcements. For example, they've said they're now finally going to open up their data to researchers, you know, scholarly researchers. And this just made me laugh out loud because since Facebook started, researchers have been asking for access to the data. But what Facebook did, cannily, uh, from their perspective, is instead fund research themselves, hiring academics for hire, for example, who would have access to very controlled amounts of Facebook data. And surprise, surprise, much of their research showed it was very healthful and beneficial to use social media. So, you know, Facebook's now finally doing something that scholars have been demanding it do for a very long time. So, it, again, it's difficult not to see this with a bit of a jaundiced eye if you've been following yeah. Facebook. I mean, th- th- this is the fundamental business model, right? That you are you are the product. So there's a little bit. Uh, uh, a little bit of, you know, I'm shocked, shocked to find out uh, <laughs> that this data is being spread around because that's what Facebook is is all about. Um, I I think that it's going to be interesting to watch how he how he stands up against what I think is going to be, you know, some some very, very aggressive questioning and which deservedly so. Like, for example, I mean, I want to know, you know, what malicious actors have all of this this data? I mean, you know, they're saying that they plan to, you know, restrict access. Uh, you know, they said that, well, you know, these this is their term. Malicious actors have abused its features. Well, who are we talking about here? Are I know. We well, talking it, it, about the Russians. Are we talking about, you know, what? Well, it's funny how they, they posit themselves as sort of the little red riding hood in this fable, right? It's like, oh, we're just skipping along to grandmother's house. And then these horrible bad actors pounce. Again, this this is a narrative that they've been pushing for a little while now, certainly since the Cambridge Analytica situation came up. But they've known about these vulnerabilities for a very long time, and they didn't fix them because it would have undermined their business model. I mean, if you look, for example, at, at the demands that a lot of scholars and activists have been making, for example, just to give the 
give Americans the same privacy protections that Europeans already enjoy with regard to their digital data? And when asked this question directly, would Facebook commit to this? There was a lot of hemming and hawing on on uh, Zuckerberg's part. Um, he says, oh, yes, well, we're looking into that, et cetera, et cetera. They have no financial incentive to do that. And regardless of what he says when he's you know, being grilled by Congress, and, and regardless of how cathartic it is to watch him be grilled, uh, the proof is in the pudding. Is he actually, and is Facebook actually going to significantly change the way it does business? Um, I'm skeptical. Yeah, and again, as as free market conservatives, you know, how are we supposed to react to this? How are we supposed to regard this this question of government regulation? Because of course, the Europeans are coming in with a whole new regime of regulations, and generally, we have been skeptical. I think of of European models of of, of control. So, you know, where where do you come down on all of this? Where how, how much regulation do we want? Um, and is it possible there would be unintended consequences? The reason I, I mention that is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg might stand up and say, yeah, absolutely. I would like to see all this regulation um, with the unintended consequence of making it much, much more difficult for smaller players ever to be able to come into the marketplace and compete with him because the compliance costs would be so onerous. Well, the regulation question is is important, and I agree that we don't want to just make a mad dash to embrace regulation for the sake of regulation, pat ourselves on the back and say, now we fixed Facebook. I think the key thing that has to happen sooner rather than later is that we have to get a definition of what Facebook is. Is Facebook a publisher? Is it merely a platform? Is it, as the word, the, the buzzword that you notice coming out of the mouths of um, Sheryl Sandberg and Zuckerberg and, and all of them this past week has been, it's a community, which is you know such a lovely, warm, and cuddly word, right? Who's against community? So at the same time that they're begging for regulation, they're talking about themselves in this vague, wonderful way as a community. And I think this is a definitional problem that perhaps Congress is the right body to to define, but we don't even have a clear understanding of what kind of entity Facebook is now. It, it was one thing when it started. It's it's grown into something quite a lot different now. So I, I am not uh, knee-jerk averse to some form of regulation, but we need to define what Facebook is. Is it a platform? Is it a publisher? Is it a, a utility? Um, you could make a case for all of those functions. So we need to define it, and then we need to talk about whether uh, thoughtful regulation is necessary. And we already do have some regulation. I mean, they we do have the Federal Trade Commission, which um, is saying that it's investigating Facebook. Um, they they had a deal uh, with, with with Facebook a few years back, in which Facebook promised it would protect the data. And of course, uh, if if in fact it turns out they did not, uh, they they could face millions of dollars of of fines. Let me just dive into this whole this what appears to have triggered this particular moment. Uh, the story is about Cambridge Analytica. And uh, the role that Cambridge Analytica played in the Trump campaign, um, the role that they might have played—who knows? This is speculative. Uh, in some of the, uh, you know, Russian interference in the election, um, there there is some pushback from folks who say that this Cambridge Analytica story is really no big deal because Cambridge Analytica did nothing different than what, say, uh, organizations tied to the Obama campaign might have done back in 2012. So, is there something? knew about the Cambridge Analytica? And, and, and in your mind, how has the Cambridge Analytica story changed the, the debate that we're having about Facebook and privacy? 
Um, in two ways. One, I think it's correct to say that it, it's not as as big a deal as as it perhaps was made out to be. Um, first of all, if you're if you're getting this service for free, then as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, you know you're the product, so there there should be some assumption of risk of that data leaking. Um, but the second thing it did, I think, is a, is allow Facebook to take on an almost martyred-like position with regard to its own inability to control its data. So it said, you know, we had these rules in place, these rules were violated, which indeed they were by Cambridge Analytica. But the point is that Facebook is still the one responsible for this data, or should be. So, um, I mean, one of the interesting things to emerge about Cambridge Analytica when it scraped the data is that, you know, it, it didn't even deliver on the political promises it made to the people who hired them. So it wasn't that effective. But that's not the point here, right? The point, um, in, in conjunction with the potential Russian meddling in elections using Facebook, with you know all these third parties who have access to people's data without their knowledge, I think what people are most angry about is the lack of information, the lack of transparency. And this is a company that, by the way, is constantly touting its transparency. It has for mm -hmm. years. But in fact, it's very difficult to tell what happens to your information if you use Facebook. And so I think Cambridge Analytica became this stand-in because of the scale of the data scraping that went on um, for something that's really been bothering people for a long time and, and all kind of coalesced around this particular whistleblower story. Well, it's, it's bothered them for a long time, but not enough to change people's habits. And this, mm -hmm. of course, we've talked about this before. It's the it's the paradox of privacy. Everybody, you know, will claim that they care about their personal privacy, but then they act as if they don't care because they are shedding uh, you know, reams of data about themselves every single time they go online, every time they, they, they click on something, every time they make a purchase. And... You know, a few years back, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that people have, had just given up on privacy. But this seems to be that moment where they're coming back and going, OK, wait, um, who actually owns that data? You know, don't I have some more say in who knows what about me? And this does seem to me uh, to be a potential watershed moment. I think I think that's right. And I, I also um would raise the question of for the you know five people on earth who aren't on Facebook, uh, uh, among which I include myself. I never joined Facebook for a lot of the concerns that we've been discussing today. Um, but I bet Facebook still has a lot of information about me, even though I never signed um, you know terms and services and and never never created a Facebook account, simply because their reach extends so broadly. So if I'm in a photo, even if I'm not tagged, my concern is, look, uh, they bought one of the largest facial recognition technology companies a few years back. Um, so what's to stop Facebook from mining the photos that Facebook users post that include the images of people who have not signed on to Facebook's terms and services and yet are still caught in Facebook's web? Um, you know, they've also invested heavily in virtual reality technology. So I think it's not just about the data you post that's then scraped and sold to third parties. It's about their global reach. It's about their global aspirations. And I think one of the things that's um, interesting about this moment is that it was just, you know, what, six months ago, we were joking slash horrified at the idea that Zuckerberg was perhaps laying the groundwork to run for political <laughs> office one day. And if if anything comes out of this whole debacle and all this testimony, it might be that those ambitions at least have been quashed for a little longer. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because, it, you know, 
Mark Zuckerberg at least thought of himself for a while as a potential presidential candidate, and he was kind of riding high. He's what, 33 years old? Mm -hmm. Which, which I'm sorry, it's, you know, it, it continues to amaze me. Um, but and as I wrote for the Weekly Standard, he's not yet the Martin Shkreli of of, uh, <laughs> of of social media. But his image has taken a real hit. So what what is the problem with Mark Zuckerberg? You know, there are questions on Capitol Hill. Are you the right person to lead Facebook? Which is really kind of an in your face question. Um, is he the right person? I mean, is he has he just simply been exposed? Uh, you know, has, has the has the image been cracked by this whole controversy? It certainly has. And the, the whole founder's dilemma is emerging in, in, with Facebook. Um, you know, often the founders of things, uh, out, uh, out, the company outgrows the founder's vision, or the founder's vision starts to hamper the company's growth. So in this case, um, it, it's hard to know. I mean, you, you have Zuckerberg himself seems not to know what he's going to be doing in 10 years, but he's vastly ambitious. He's... Um, doesn't seem at all interested in actually self-regulating, uh, having Facebook regulate itself in a, in a thoughtful way, because if he did, he would have already taken steps to do that, because there have been plenty of opportunities that, that he's just passed by. Um, it's not clear. And he is young. He could certainly reinvent himself in, in some way down the line. Should he step down from his own company? I mean, I wouldn't make that call. That's a call for his board to make. He did do a big stock sell-off recently, which which must signal something. Um, but he's not, uh, I don't think he can any longer lay claim to being some visionary leader in the broadest sense anymore. Because if you're the leader, you have to take responsibility for failure. And this is the first time He's doing that when he sits before yeah. Congress. Yeah, and, and I and I and I think he's going to continue to be haunted, as he ought to be haunted, by his his attempts to sort of brush off any 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 Russian interference in the election. Oh, it's, it's silly to think that uh, that we were being used or abused and everything. Now, of course, the obvious questions that he's being asked, you know, what did you know and when did you know it? Why mm -hmm. did you not share it? But I, I think what's fascinating about this, we've talked about the whole privacy issue, but you know, there's 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 two other themes here that I think we have a. We have to come to grips with, and that are very difficult to come to grips with. You know, um, privacy being one, but just bigness. How big and how powerful Facebook has become, along with you could know, you know throw out you know Google and Amazon, but let's put them over on the side. The concentration of power and the disproportionate impact on the entire media ecosystem. Now, I'm not a big fan of antitrust legislation, but that was designed to you know, to deal with the concentrations of of power and. Uh, you know, I we're we're now confronting, you know, how, you know, how much of this marketplace is held by a very very small number of of companies, and the other big issue, is our inability to keep up with the pace of change. You know, mm -hmm. you just mentioned a few minutes ago this new facial recognition technology. We haven't even had a societal discussion and debate about how we're going to react to that because the pace of change is faster than our ability to even absorb it and figure out what we think about it. Mm, yes, the the power Facebook exercises because of its market share as a social network has led directly to the hubris that we've seen the company mm -hmm. and its founder in particular uh, display for for at least a decade. Um, and I think this hubris has, up until this week, led to a contempt for the idea of governance, uh, both of, of the way our democracy works, which is messy and about compromise and slow and bureaucratic, sometimes sclerotic, um, but still functions in, in an important role in our society. And I think much of the Silicon Valley ethos is about 
bypassing that. They're about efficiency. They're about find a solution. It doesn't matter how many things you break along the way. Um, you know, this this is this is their ethos. So you're seeing finally that ethos sit and testify before Congress, and that's kind of fascinating just from a social cultural perspective. But whether or not it will actually lead to a to a decline in this Silicon Valley hubris. I'm not so sure. Um, the amount of money, um, the amount of market share that companies like Facebook, Google, and Amazon now have, that's going to have to be counterbalanced with something else. It might be regulation. It might be consumer uh, consumers just becoming fed up and walking away from some of these services. But it's difficult, right? I mean, we it's talked about this earlier. Yeah. If you're a small business, you need Facebook. If you're a publisher, um, you rely a lot on on these tools as well. So. Those are the difficult questions. Those are the difficult questions that even a, a mildly dysfunctional Congress needs to try to answer. I would not want to leave it in the hands of Silicon Valley um, self-appointed emperors to figure out for themselves. Uh, no, and also just to get some some handle on 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 all of the the unintended consequences of their actions. Um, I, a few months ago, I'm I'm on a I'm on a commission, and uh, we, we we had a break. We we're talking about, uh, you know, Facebook. We we're talking about the future of democracy and social media. And in the hallway, um, an editor of a, I would say, a, a he, he wouldn't find this to be insulting, a, a far left uh, publication, came up to me and said, uh, "Hey, listen, um, I, I want you to ask a question if you possibly can, because ever since Facebook changed its its news feed, our traffic has dropped by about sixty percent. And and this is, of course, something you hear from a lot of publications, independent mm -hmm. publications." That when 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 Facebook sneezes, they get pneumonia. That that they they make uh, what appear to be you know relatively technical changes that have just you know massive impact on the ability of a lot of these publications. So a lot of these publications are really um, you know living in fear of what Facebook will do. And I don't know that anything changes. So do you think that anything does change as a result of what's happening this week on Capitol Hill? Um. It's a cliche, but time will tell. We'll see. We'll see. Um, one thing that has been fascinating, as you mentioned, is that this is no longer a left-right issue. No. So I hear people on the, you know, uh, people who are generally skeptical of regulation uh, and and very pro-free market on the right, seriously thinking about regulating some of these companies. And you hear on the left a lot, a lot of concern about, um, you know, what goes on on these platforms in terms of how people are treated, about election manipulation. I mean, these are serious issues that really are in nonpartisan. And I think if if we can find a way, even in this extremely partisan era, to have these discussions and talk about legislation that might be useful or regulation that might be useful, we can see something accomplished. I, I'm not a pessimist about that. I'm quite cynical about Silicon Valley, but I'm not pessimistic about our ability to rein them in somewhat. The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by RX Bar. Now, that's a whole food protein bar. So what does that mean? Their bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. Ingredients. A couple of years ago, uh, RX Bar called BS on other protein bars because there wasn't a protein bar out there that wasn't full of artificial ingredients, fillers, preservatives. So that's why RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients and where every ingredient serves a purpose. So they label all these core ingredients, things like egg whites, dates, and nuts, right on the front of the package. And the ingredients that make up the texture and the taste are on the back, you know, you know, cocoa, uh, coconut, et cetera. 
uh, you know, and again, these core ingredients are what do all the talking. It's like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six, uh, six almonds, and they come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. And I will tell you, um, as somebody that uh, travels, in fact, uh, today I'm I'm actually leaving the country. I decided that it's time for me to go to Canada. So I'm going to be on, on a plane for some time, and I'm going to take along the RX bars because they are the perfect snack. Um, then we have a special offer for listeners of this podcast for 20% off your first order. Visit rxbar.com slash standard and enter promo code standard. Again, that's rxbar.com standard. Enter promo code standard for 25% off. Okay, Christine, one, one last question. Mm-hmm. I, we were talking about the uh, you know this this new world this new online world and the concentration of power. Uh, I wonder whether or not um, the president's personal animus towards Amazon.com might might cloud some of the some of this issue. You'll, it, it is interesting that he, the president's spending a lot of time talking about the the concentration of power and the distortions in the marketplace by uh, Amazon.com, but uh, Donald Trump has not said much about Facebook. And I, I don't expect that he will. No, it's it's uh, it's not at all surprising, and and frankly, it's kind of shocking to hear a, a president directly attack a company like Amazon. And there were far too few, particularly Republicans, who <laughs> denounced him for it. So this is not how our system works. Um, it should not be. I mean, just because Bezos owns the Washington Post and the president doesn't like the way the Post covers his presidency doesn't mean he should be going on toddler tirades against um, Amazon. Um, yeah, I mean, that's why it's it's hard to, to separate it. I mean, we're talking about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook because I think it has you know fundamental impacts on privacy. But unfortunately, and, and I think that there are legitimate issues you can raise about Amazon and the effect that they've had on the marketplace. But of course, what the president is doing is he's, he's pursuing a vindictive personal and political agenda, which again, I, I think distorts the debate a bit. Exactly. And there, as you said, there's a, there's a great deal we should be talking about in terms of Amazon's dominance as a platform and its ambitions, none of which have to do with the complaints that, that Trump was making. Um, and I think the entire discussion of how we handle these huge tech companies in the future can't be clouded by these petty um, partisan machinations and uh, certainly not by the president's Twitter feed. Exactly right. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.